all good things can be abused. We have, I think, sort of somewhat in our fallen state, a natural inclination to despise good things if we encounter on a regular basis people abusing those good things. Right? Like a, a, a common example is how many people really, really hate alcohol. They just despise alcohol. And oftentimes that comes from a place where they've just seen it ruin people's lives. They've seen the destruction that men and women have caused through it. Uh, another sort of heated topic in our current culture is how some people really have come to despise guns, or in Europe it's even knives, because again, they've just so often been around people who abuse these things, and they use them so destructively that we begin to hate the very thing itself. It's a natural tendency to some degree to despise even good things when they're used for evil, when they're used contrary to their purpose. And this is just as true of spiritual things as it is of worldly carnal things. And so thankfully, we have a reminder from our text this morning from the Apostle Paul of a couple of good gifts that God has given to us, which in our fallen state are easy to despise. Things that we ought not to despise, but that we ought to instead actually be thankful for, even though, yes, they can be abused. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, please? 1 Timothy chapter 1. We are going to begin right at the beginning and read through verse 11. So when you're there, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. I think that as 21st century Americans, it's easy for us to sort of view the word authority as a bad word. Now, obviously, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, but I think it's a somewhat safe brush to paint with. It's easy for us as 21st century Americans to sort of despise authority from the get-go. In other words, it's hard not to equate the word authority with the word tyranny. They're not the same thing, 
Sometimes we make them the same things in our mind. We're an independent people. We don't like to be bossed around. We don't like to have our liberties threatened. And in our defense, right, I think the reason that we are like this is because our history as a people is accustomed to seeing authority be so badly abused. This is true on a macro level, right? As Protestants, we come from, a theologi- from theological fathers who had to fight the horrible tyranny and the corruption of their religious leaders in the 16th century. So as Protestants, we're sort of on guard against ecclesiastical tyranny. And then on a, on a more, or, or that was micro, on a more macro level, as Americans, what's the history of our nation? What fathers do we come from? We come from a people who had to resist an abusive, corrupt, tyrannical political system. And so it's easy for us, it's just sort of in our blood to some degree, as Protestants and as Americans, to be on guard and to be hesitant of the abuse of authority, which sometimes leads to just a distrust of authority in general. And this has only been made worse over the last three or four years where we have seen just an incredible amount of threats to our civil liberties today. And I think all of us can agree to some degree or another that we're not happy with where our country is going and the way our political system is operating today. Again, we are just surrounded by the abuse of authority. I mean, and and, and not even speaking as a people, just think of yourself as an individual. How many of you have a personal history where you've been burned by, by abusive parents? or a manipulative pastor, or a cruel boss, or a tyrannical government, an unjust stop with a police officer. All these different examples, again, we are just surrounded by the abuse of authority that it's really easy for us to just sort of be the kind of people that despise authority. However, when we look at the passage that we just read, it's important for us to be reminded that the Apostle Paul sees authority Not in its abuse, but in its original purpose, and specifically authority within the church, as a very good thing. So what we're going to look at in our sermon text today are two things that you are tempted to despise, but are actually good. We're going to look at two things that the Apostle Paul says, hey, these things, they're abused, but they're actually good. And the first one is authority. Our first part today is authority is good. Look at verses 1 through 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul has a kind of standard introduction here, but this one is riddled with authority. Right? So it begins with Paul reminding Timothy, and then all who are under Timothy, of his authority. Right? He reminds Timothy, who's writing to you? Is it just a friend? Is it just your father in the faith? No. An apostle is writing to you. I'm an apostle. What's he trying to say to Timothy? You and everyone under you, you you must obey me. This letter carries authority with it. This is an apostolic letter. He's trying to leverage his authority, which makes sense because very quickly we learn that there's some dissension in the church. So he's coming in hard with his authority. Who's writing to you, Timothy? Your friend? Yeah. But more than that, an apostle. But he doesn't just leverage his authority as an apostle. He even leverages the authority that made him an apostle. Right? Why is Paul an apostle? Did he self-appoint himself? Did he just think, you know, I think I've got what it takes for this. I'll be an apostle. No. By the command of God and Christ. And notice, he doesn't use softer language like God made me an apostle or God called me to be an apostle. 
He uses those words in other places, but here it's a commandment. I was commanded to be an apostle. Again, that's language of authority. Paul is trying to bring authority right into the beginning of this. The authority of Christ and God was imposed upon me and made me an authority, and now I am imposing my authority onto you. Authority is good. And then what he immediately does after this is he he transitions from God's authority to his authority, and then he immediately endows Timothy with authority. Look at verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So you have authority to go in there and charge people to stop them from teaching what they're teaching. And if they say, who made you the boss of us? You say, an apostle. And if they say, well, who made him the boss? You say, Christ. If they say, well, who made him the boss? You say, God. The authority went from God to Christ to Paul to Timothy. And Paul wants Timothy to now utilize his authority in the church. Timothy would probably love to just continue the missionary work with Paul. Remember, Timothy was his traveling companion. He wants to go to Macedonia with Paul, but Paul says there are problems in Ephesus, and as much as I would love to have you come with Macedonia to me, no, I am urging you, I am charging you, you need to stay in Ephesus, and you need to clean house. He is leveraging his authority. So authority is good for Paul, but why is it good? What is the purpose of authority in this text? What does authority do? I I think to answer that question, we need to first look at the problem. What's the problem that Paul thinks authority addresses? So let's look at the problem in Ephesus. Let's begin in verses 3 through 4. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship, the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the situation in Ephesus is dire because false teachers have risen up. And Paul kind of just generically describes the nature of their false teaching. We don't know a lot of the, the precisely exactly what it was that they were teaching. right? We just have these vague concepts from Paul. So for example, he refers to them as myths. He refers to the, them as endless genealogies. And that these things lead to speculation. So we know that they're promoting myths, which some people say is the Greek mythology of their culture. Um, But in the book of Titus, he calls these Jewish myths. So I don't think this is Greek mythology, this is Jewish mythology. So they're they're promoting this Jewish mythology, they're promoting these genealogies, which kind of makes sense because the Jewish religion then, even today, is so based upon what tribe you're from, whose bloodline you have, who's your father, and, and so this was really important to them. And Paul says that they, they, they eventually lead to speculation. And that's really all that we know, is they're teaching myths, endless genealogies, and speculative theology. And so we don't, again, know, like, I can't tell you exactly what they were teaching, but apparently it wasn't important for the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. But we, do, we can gather some things about why this is so bad. And the first thing we know is that whatever it was specifically that we're teaching, it was a departure from the received apostolic tradition. And what I mean by that is because what did Paul charge Timothy? Not to teach, look at the end of verse 3, not to teach any different doctrine. 
So the, 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 the presupposition of that phrase is that there was already sort of a standard received understanding of Christianity. There was already within the church sort of a, a creed, if you will. We understand this is Christianity. We've received this from the apostles. And these men are saying different things. The very nature of our religion, by the way, is that it is a revealed religion. We receive truth as Christians. We don't invent it. Paul and the other apostles had already received from Jesus the gospel. They received from Christ the Christian faith. And it was the job of the Christian people not to figure theology out, but to receive it. Paul actually hints at this at the very end in verse 11. Look at verse 11 with me. All of these things are in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. He's telling us we have a revealed religion here. God, the glorious God, has revealed his glory to Paul as an apostle. He entrusted it to him. He said, Paul, here's my religion. I'm trusting you with it. Now go and teach it. And now all of us as the recipients become those entrusted with the gospel. It's a high calling. But again, the point is Paul was not a philosopher who sat in a room and figured all this theology out. He received it. And Timothy received it. And the churches received it. And these false teachers, they're the ones going into their classrooms, figuring these things out and going against what has been received. They're teaching different doctrine. And Paul says that the, the, the other thing that's bad about this, other than just the fact that it's novel, and as Christians we're not interested in novel beliefs, we want apostolic beliefs. But he says uh, another issue is not only is this different, but it leads to something. It leads to speculation. Paul is very concerned that they are teaching speculative theology. Now what is speculation? Well, if you want a dictionary definition... The dictionaries define it as the forming of a theory or conjecture without firm evidence. Speculation is just baseless convictions and inferences. You believe something and you might have some logic behind it, but there's, there's really no way of proving it. There's, there's not any evidence to the contrary or for it. It's just, just almost like guesswork. And Paul despises speculative theology because it's useless. If there's no way to affirm it or to deny it, it can't actually lead to anything. So he's concerned about this useless information. These men are spending hours and hours a day talking about useless things that no one needs to know. Paul's trying to say, listen, if there are no definitive answers to be found, if it's not in the Word of God, if it's not clearly natural theology, we have to wonder, how important is it for us to know? Is God hiding like the really, really important stuff for us and deep speculation that can never be? Or has God revealed his truth to us? The, the, these men, in other words, they, they, are, they are minor. They're majoring on minors. They're, they're going on these things. No one really even has an answer to these questions. They're useless. They cannot actually produce fruit in us. And so that's what's happening in Ephesus. But more than that, he, he picks up again in verses 6 and 7. Look at what he says about him there. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. In short, Paul's grief in Ephesus is over self-appointed teachers who sound really smart, but they don't have a clue what they're talking about. 
They make confident assertions. They're confident and they're educated and they sound really, really smart. And Paul says, don't be distracted by all the confidence. They don't know what they're talking about. And they made themselves teachers. These are self-appointed teachers who sound smart, but they don't know what they're talking about. These men are not men who had a proper ordination like Paul and like Timothy. They made themselves teachers and they're really deep thinkers and they're talking about all these things that the lady could never possibly prove or disprove. And so Timothy was charged to come in and overrule them. He was charged to come in and say, I'm the pastor, Paul ordained me, Christ ordained him, you're done promoting these myths. He was charged to come in and overrule them. That's why Paul sees authority as good. Look at what Paul says is the aim of Timothy's charge. Their their doctrine, their practice produces speculation, vain discussion, useless theology. What is Timothy charged to do? Look at verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Right, so here's the goal of how Timothy can properly use his authority. The aim of his job, the aim of his authority is to bring about love. And love, by the way, is just the generic term we have for good works. Fruit, production, treating people right. We are going to love neighbor and we're going to love God. That's the goal of Timothy's doctrine. It produces fruit in you. But where does that love come from? It comes from faith. That's the goal of Timothy's doctrine, love from faith. Why do we say that? Well, because he says love issues from what? Love issues from a pure heart. God has purified you. A good conscience. God has assured you of his love and the purification that you have. And sincere faith. Not just an external faith, not just a faith of lips, but genuine faith. When you genuinely believe the promises of God and are purified and have that assurance, then you are in a place to begin loving and showing good works. And that's what Timothy has been charged to bring about. We want fruit, not speculation. By the way, this implies something about the false teachers. Pretty harsh. Paul's implication there is that the men who are just hammering away at this speculation, genealogies, and myths, apparently their hearts are not in the right place. Because what does a sincere faith lead to? Fruit. And Paul says their faith is leading to Vanity, vain discussions, useless theology. So what's the implication? Their faith isn't sincere. I don't know, maybe they just are saying they're Christians because they they want to become teachers and they want to be famous. Maybe they're in it for a paycheck. I don't know. Maybe they're just in it for their own glory. They couldn't make it famous in the secular world, but they can be famous in the church. I don't know what their intentions were, but Paul says whatever they are, they're not good. Because if they were good, they would be interested in edification. They would be interested in the apostles' teaching. But these men are interested in their own teaching and their own edification at the expense of everybody else. And that tells us something about their hearts. Christian doctrine that's based on Scripture, it leads to transformation and edification and good works. And this is why, just as a side note, we teach in our church that works don't justify us before God. There are churches that teach that. That was one of the primary issues of the Reformation. Many of the Reformers called it the most important issue of the whole Reformation, of whether we're justified by works or justified apart from works. The the view that we're justified by works, notice the order of operations here. In that view, works come first 
And then justification comes second. Right? You do good things, now you're right with God. Works first, justification second. But we see in this verse, verse 5, and, and really the rest of the New Testament, that the order is the other way around. You can't produce good works without justification. Justifi- good works come from justification. Justification doesn't come from good works. Faith in God's promises come first, and then you have a sincere faith, a pure conscience, purity, right? And then love, and then good works. Good works come after your transformation. They come after your pure heart and your sincere faith. Faith produces love. Justification gives birth to good works. And so, to wrap all this up, Timothy's charge as a pastor is to what? It is to help facilitate and cultivate and protect this process. Believing the promises of God, being transformed by the gospel, and producing good works, Timothy's proper authority safeguards that system. The false teachers promoting myths and speculation are distracting us from that. They're producing vanity. They're producing fruitlessness. So authority comes in. So how is authority is good? Because authority comes into this picture, and when it's used rightly, that is what allows faith and good works to flourish. So in other words, according to Paul, both tyranny and anarchy are threats to us. Right? And this applies to the civil realm too. Let me just ask you rhetorically. How many of you would be happy if just every single law and every single law enforcement officer just disappeared off the face of our country tomorrow? No laws, no police officer. We just trust you to self-govern however you see fit. Would you want to live in that world? Would you want to live in that country? I think for most of you, the answer is no. Because anarchy leads to chaos and confusion, and faith cannot grow in that space. Good works cannot grow in the garden of chaos and confusion and might makes right. Notice also what what, what authority can do. Look at verse 6. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Authority in the church, it helps keep people from swerving, from meandering, from wandering away. I, I, I submit to you that we all have this tendency. We all have this tendency to just kind of slowly move away from the truth. To just kind of slowly move away from godliness. And that, that movement, that meandering, that wandering can be so subtle and so slow that you don't even really notice you're doing it. Right? I remember learning in physics that if you had two dots, two points that are on top of each other, they're in the exact same place, and you set them both on an eternal, endless line forward, but you just barely course correct one, just half a centimeter, the smallest measurement possible, you just barely... At the beginning, they're going to be very apart. But eventually, given enough time, they are going to be miles apart. You'd be amazed at how much just a small course correction leads to destruction. And so the goal of the proper use of authority in the church is it just kind of just barely nudges us. Every Sunday, just kind of one more nudge back on the right path. And that's why sometimes it doesn't feel like transformation. It's really subtle. If you're like, I don't know why I go to church. I don't feel any different after every Sunday. It's not like I go to Sunday and have this come to Jesus moment. It doesn't always feel like the most amazing thing because our transformation is not meant to be like that. It's just subtle, minor course corrections that keep us on the right path. And Paul says that these men have meandered, they've wandered, and Timothy's authority is a means by, of, that God uses to keep them from wandering. So yes, authority is often abused in every sphere. 
in the church, in the family, in the civil government, at your jobs. But do not let that poison your mind against the gift that God has given to our world, the gift of authority. Authority is good. But authority is not the only gift from God that we need to be reminded of as being good in our passage. Right? Look at verse 8 with me. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Point number one, authority is good. Point number two, the law is good. And notice Paul says about the law exactly what I've been saying about authority and the law this whole time. He says that the law is good provided it's used lawfully. It's used according to the law, according to itself. In other words, yes, the law can be abused. And when it's abused, it's an ugly, ugly thing. But when it's used according to the purpose it was actually given for, it is good. The law is good. Now, what Paul precisely means by the law, we're not entirely sure of, because uh, the law, that term, is used in a variety of different ways in Paul's epistles. So sometimes the word the law can just be a reference to the entire Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is called the law sometimes. Sometimes it's just a reference to what we call the ceremonial laws of Moses. Um, the, like Things like circumcision and not eating certain foods and not wearing certain clothing, ceremonial laws. Sometimes those laws will just be called the law. Sometimes the word the law is just a reference to what we call the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses. And sometimes the word the law is used of just what we call the moral law, which is the, the standard of morality that God judges every man from every religion over. And that standard, that moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments are essentially equivalent to the moral law. Now, Paul is probably thinking of the whole Old Testament when he's talking here, but we know that he's primarily talking about the Ten Commandments. It makes me think that maybe the false teachers in the church were abusing the Ten Commandments and, 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 and running with them with false interpretations. I don't know for sure, but we know that Paul is, is really primarily looking at the Ten Commandments here. And the reason we know that is because the Ten Commandments were revealed in two tablets. That's why we, we'll talk about the first table of the law and the second table. The first table is our duty toward God, the first four. And then the second table is our duty towards men, the last six. And what's interesting is when Paul, he talks about how the law is good and how it was given for sinners... And he goes in and he starts listing just a handful of sins. And you know what's interesting? He essentially just walks point by point through the second table of the law. Right? So just as an example of that, look at verse 9 where he begins this list. He says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Those are sort of all synonymous. He's just saying it's, it's, it's made for ungodly people. And then he gets to give examples of these ungodly people. They are those who strike their fathers and mothers, which is from the fourth commandment. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So he first condemns the abuse of the fourth commandment. And then he immediately moves on in verse 9 to what? Those who strike their father and mothers to murderers, which is the next commandment, the fifth commandment. You shall not murder. But then he continues in verse 10. Read verse 10 with me. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and then whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So the next one who moves on to is sexual immorality, which is a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. 
right? Because sexual immorality is just any sexual partakings that happen outside of the marriage covenant. So all sexual immorality is ultimately a violation of this commandment which was given to set the parameters for intimacy. But then notice what he does. So he takes this broad term, sexual immorality, and then he takes a specific, a particularly heinous and a particularly unnatural form of that and isolates it. Homosexuality. Which is, but again, homosexuality is still just a violation of this commandment. Because it's not a man and a woman in marriage. So sexual immorality, including the really vile forms of sexual immorality like homosexuality, are both condemned in the sixth commandment. But then he moves on to what the ESV calls enslavers. Your Bible might say man-stealers. But essentially it's just the word for kidnapping. In the Old Testament, if you kidnapped a person, you were penalized by death. Kidnapping was a capital crime. You were put to death. And so that is why Paul immediately brings up this example of man-stealing, which is a violation of what? The next commandment, the seventh commandment, you shall not steal. And again, Paul wants to give really heinous examples. Stealing is sinful no matter what. But you want to know what's the most, the worst thing you can possibly steal is a person. That's, that's really bad. People are made in the image of God. So man-stealers, kidnappers are sort of the worst of the worst when it comes to theft. But you shall not steal, and that includes people, so Paul lists that. And then he moves on to liars and perjurers, which is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Right? So lying is bearing false witness. And then perjury, kind of like what he did with sexual immorality and homosexuality. It is a form of lying, but it's a particularly heinous form. Right? So what is perjury? Perjury is when you lie under oath. Lying is always sinful. But it is especially sinful. It is especially grievous to God when you lie under oath. When you have sworn to tell the truth and then you don't, that's perjury. That's especially sinful. Which is why, by the way, this is a side note. It's not in my notes. Um, But this is one of the reasons why, as Christians, we want to rid ourselves of the vocabulary that sometimes becomes filler in conversations. People say things like, no, I swear to God. No, 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 I promise, I swear to God. Don't do that. Number one, it's a violation of taking God's name in vain. But number two, you can swear to God as casually as you want, but God takes it seriously. So if you are going to say that, you better mean it. It's not just a blasphemy of the name of God. It's a blasphemy of the sacredness of oaths. Oaths are very, very sacred. You can swear on God. There's a time and a place to do that. You better mean it. And you better fulfill it. God takes it very seriously. Perjury is an especially heinous form of lying. Right. So as you can see, Paul is really viewed in here on the Ten Commandments. That's sort of the moral law that he is talking about. And he's, the whole point that he's getting us back to now that we've seen all that is that he wants us to see that this standard of living, these rules, this Old Testament, it's good. Everything you just looked at is good. And I think that this is important even for us as Christians to know. You know, we don't have false teachers in our church abusing the law like is happening here. But we have many other reasons that our culture tempts us to despise the Old Testament and to despise the law of God. It often has laws and penalties that we don't like. 
It contains strange passages from a very different culture that sometimes are just weird for us and hard for us to understand. Non-Christians love to attack the Old Testament. They love to attack the laws of God. And so I've known many Christians who have felt a true temptation to just stop studying the Old Testament, to disregard the Old Testament, to not even like the Old Testament, and really just be New Testament Christians. I don't care what Moses had to say. What did Jesus have to say? When did Jesus ever address homosexuality? When did Jesus ever address kidnapping and man-stealing? I know Moses addressed those things, but Paul is interested in what Moses had to say. Paul thinks these laws are good. We need to find them good. The law of God is good. Now, I don't think I need to convince you of that, but it's in the text, so I'm going to anyway. How is the law of God good? And I love this question because it allows me to teach us what has come since the time of the Reformation. The Lutherans and the Reformed both agree on what we call the three uses of the law. The three uses of the law. Now, I'm going to do them a little out of order in the order they normally go in. But the order is not so much important as just knowing what they are. We have argued from the time of the Reformation, why did God give us a law? And we think there's three primary purposes for God's law. The first one we're going to talk about is the one that is under Paul's mind in our text. So let's read verse 9 again. After telling us the law is good, provided it's used according to its purpose, he tells us what it's for. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. And then he starts to list some of those behaviors. So this is Paul appealing to what we call the civil use of the law. The first use of the law is called the civil use of the law. And this is the view Paul has in mind when he says that the law was not given for the just, but it was given for sinners. What this tells us is that Paul knows that a primary purpose of the law is to restrain evil. That's what we mean by the civil use of the law. God's law helps curb evil. It helps keep evil at bay. It controls violent outbursts of sin and keeps order in a world by revealing what is wrong and threatening punishment to those who break it. That's how Luther's small catechism describes it. And so again, I take you back to that question I already asked you. How would you feel about living in a country that had no laws? Does that encourage you? Does that make you happy? No, that's a fearful thing. So what does that tell us? That laws are good. They help prevent evil. The fact that we have laws and threatenings for breaking them help keep society running in a civil way. And that's why God gave us His law. He gave us rules and He threatened lawbreakers, and that helps control sin to some degree. God's law restrains sinners. Now, what's funny about the first use of law is that if you're a Christian, it no longer applies to you. You, as a Christian, are no longer under this use of the law. This is what we read all throughout the New Testament. We read all, especially in Paul, uh, this little phrase, you are no longer under the law. You are free from the law. You are no longer under the law. Just one example from Galatians. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So the first use of the law is, as Paul says, it's not for the just. It's for the sinners. It's to restrain sin. It's to restrain evildoers. But that's not who we are anymore. So we're not under this part of the law anymore. The law is no longer a threat to you if you're in Christ. The law can no longer condemn you if you're in Christ. So the first one is not for the just. It's for the unjust, as Paul says. Now, you might be thinking, oh, well, that's good news, so I can just live however I want then. 
If I'm not under the law, if the law is not scary anymore, just live however I want, right? But Paul refutes that in the book of Romans. Do we then overthrow this law by faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So that brings us to our second use of the law, which we call the normative use of the law. The normative. So we have the civil use, which is to restrain evil. But then there's the normative use of the law. And this view states that for those who are saved, the law continues to teach us what we should and should not do in order to live a God-pleasing life. As spirit-led Christians, our desire is now to obey God. We now have the desire and the ability to obey God, something we didn't have before we were saved. So we could only be controlled by threats and condemnation. But now we've been released from threats, we've been released from condemnation, but we have the Spirit. So we love God and we want to please Him just because we love Him. But how do you do that? How do you please God? What does God's will for your life look like? What does God want you to do? That's what the law is for. The law becomes our guide to holiness. It becomes our guide to how we can please God. And that's why we say that when Paul earlier in verse 5 said love, which springs forth, love is just synonymous for good works. The law teaches you how to love. If you want to be a loving person, it's really easy. Obey God. This isn't me. This is Paul. He says it in verse 5, but he says it elsewhere. For example, in Romans 13, Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You want to love your neighbors? Great. Obey the second table of the law. That's how you love your neighbors. And, and Paul himself didn't make this up. He got this directly from Jesus. When Jesus was asked, what are the greatest commandments? Notice Jesus' answer. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So all you have to do to fulfill the whole Bible is to love God and love neighbor. You know what that sounds like? First table of the law, second table of the law. The law teaches us how to love. It teaches us how to obey God and to serve our neighbor. However, we have to remember that the power to live according to the law doesn't come from the law itself. We now are able to fulfill the law, but that doesn't come from the law. That comes from the gospel. So a key distinction in understanding the uses of the law is to remember the law is not the gospel. Paul makes that pretty clear in our text, actually. Look at verses 10 through 11 with me. The law is for the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So notice there is a distinction between the law and the gospel. This is why if someone ever asks, what is the gospel? And a person responds, be a good person and you'll go to heaven. That's not the gospel. That's called law. Obey God is not the gospel. That's the law. But while the law and the gospel are different, according to verses 10 and 11, they are nonetheless friends. Because the law is in accordance with the gospel. They work together. So this leads us to our third and final use of the law, which is called the pedagogical use of the law. And pedagogy is just a fancy word for teaching. The law is a teacher. So the law restrains evil. The law shows us how to live a holy life. But the law also teaches us something. And what does the law teach us? 
Well, I can summarize it in this way. It teaches you that you need a Savior. The purpose of the law is to show you that you need a Savior. This is why you may have heard the law sometimes metaphorically described as a mirror. And it's a great analogy. Right? Mirrors don't clean you. If you're dirty, you don't rub your face on a mirror. Mirrors don't clean you. The law doesn't clean you. The law can't save you. The law can't cleanse you. You need water to clean you. You need a wash to be cleaned. But the mirror is important because it shows you you need the water. You look in the mirror, you see how dirty you are, and then you turn and run to the water. And that's the relationship of law and gospel. What the law does is it silences each and every person who would dare say, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven without Jesus. I don't know why I need Jesus. Why would God hate me? I'm a good person. Why would God send a nice guy like me to hell? I'm not dirty. And the law is a mirror that says, you want to bet? Let's walk through the Ten Commandments and see how often you break these just in one day. Let alone your whole life. The purpose of the law is not to save you, but it is to show you you need saving. Every time you get swelled up with pride and conceit, go read the Ten Commandments. Go read the law of God and see how well you do. The purpose of the law then becomes a tutor, a schoolmaster, a teacher. It leads us to Christ. And I want you to see that. I've I've gone longer than I I planned on, but I I want you to see it. So let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, because this is a really important use of the law. It's hard to believe that the law is good if we don't understand this this part. Galatians chapter 3. We'll read verses 21 through 26 together, and we we will almost be done. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So here's Paul saying, we're not saved by the law, we're saved by the promises of God. If God wanted us to be saved by the law, he would have given us a law that could save. But he didn't give us a law that could save. So why then the law? Verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, there's the first use, until the coming faith would be revealed. There's our third. So then the law was our guardian. Your Bible might say teacher or schoolmaster or pedagogy. The law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So the law is a friend to the gospel and it is our tutor. It teaches us that we are sinners and you need to run to Jesus. So when Paul says the law is good, he means it. It's good. It restrains evil. It shows us how to please God, and it leads us to Christ. The law is good. And I know there are many who despise it. Even as Christians, we're tempted to despise God's law. Sometimes we're just dread having conversations about the Old Testament at all. But do not despise the larger portion of your Bible. Do not despise the Bible of the early church. Yes, it's abused, but it is good. The law is good. And the best way to know that the law is good and to live according to it is to become a member of a biblical church that has proper authority. Because authority too is good. 
And it's given for our flourishing, for our liberty. So embrace authority and embrace God's law. In fact, I think our aim is to embrace all of the things that God has given to us and that by His Spirit, we will never abuse them, but that we will always use them toward their intended purpose.